we're in the middle of our 50 series, and uh, we called it 50 because Christ Jesus, our King Jesus, was crucified on Passover, fulfilling the Old Testament. He literally becomes the Passover lamb. And then 50 days later, the Holy Spirit descends on the day of Pentecost. And so we actually celebrate Pentecost Sunday, the end of May. So in this 50 series, Um, we are taking a look at the infilling power of the Holy Spirit and really asking the question, how is it that you can have um, more of the Holy Spirit when you already have everything in Christ? So I just wanna say a big welcome to you. If I didn't introduce myself, I'm Michael Mattis. I pastor Saltbox Church here in Wilmington, North Carolina. And wherever you are, whatever couch you're on or whatever device you're on, we just wanna welcome you and say we're so glad to have you here this morning. So um, I'm actually in Acts 2, and we're gonna look at the first eight verses of Acts 2, and then we're gonna look at just a couple of verses at the very end um, of Acts 2 as well. And uh, you know, this is actually the day of Pentecost is what we're gonna read, and I couldn't help but think as I was standing over there getting ready to preach, worshiping with, with Perry, but um, I went through a really hard time in 2008, and at the end of that time, I actually uh, made this Bible cover. I took a sheet of leather and, and made it, and it's actually made um, to represent this passage that we're about to read today, the infilling power of the Holy Spirit, where Christ Jesus ascended and the Holy Spirit descended, and then the flames of fire. So this is just really near and dear to me, to my heart, um, but as with many passages of Scripture, we're going to take a little different look at it today, and maybe even uh, hopefully reinvent and reinvigorate and maybe broaden your perspective on what this passage is all about. So let's read, first of all, Acts 2, 1 through 8, and then I'm going to jump down to the end and read 38 through 41 also of chapter 2. So here we go. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. There's about 120 of them. So you got the 11 apostles, a new apostle that's been appointed, and then some other people, about 120 together. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. So a wind inside where they were sitting. Verse three, they saw what seemed to be like tongues of fire that literally separated and came down to rest over each of them or on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse five, now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, the sound of the rushing wind, a crowd came together in bewilderments because each of them heard their own language being spoken. They were utterly amazed. They asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that each of us hears them in our own native language. What happens next is Peter actually gets up and preaches a magnificent sermon, which we're going to look at in a consecutive week. But I want to go down to the very end of chapter two, and I want to read verse 38 to 41. This is the end of Peter's sermon, um, and it's crucial to what we're going to talk about today. But here's where it says, verse 38, it says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 
With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Get this, fascinating here, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So they went from 120 to 3,120. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you actually fill um, this place where we are gathered and would you fill every home, every living room where everyone else that we love and is, is participating in this is gathered? Would you make yourself real to us Would you enliven our hearts and our minds with your word today? We praise you. We love you. Because you first loved us. Amen. So the first thing that I want to point out here is you've literally got um, these apostles and then and a group of people who've gathered around them and they've walked with Christ Jesus for three years and then suddenly their king, their King Jesus, their Lord, their God is crucified and then he raises from the dead and he begins to appear to them at different times. One time he even appeared to a group of 500 is what the scripture tells us. And Jesus literally says in some of his last words, wait here, wait here in this place, in this upper room until you receive power from the Holy Spirit and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So they're, they're literally waiting in this upper room but, but when you look into the text, what you actually begin to get is they're probably very much um, afraid because their king, their Jesus was just crucified by the, by the Roman government and they're probably afraid that they're gonna be crucified, that the Jewish people are gonna come and drag them out in the same fashion and kill them. And so you sort of get this idea that, um, in fact, one passage says the doors are locked and you know the, 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 the blinds are pulled and they're sort of cowering and hiding. And yet they're also waiting in, in accordance to what Jesus had said to be filled with the Spirit. And you know, I, I think there, there uh, was a, a good bit um, of fear in the room. That's my interpretation or reading in. And then there's suddenly this eruption, first of wind and then of fire, and then uh, people are speaking in different languages, and then this um, sermon sort of erupts from the Apostle Peter, which is what we're going to talk a little bit about today. Um, and then 3,000 people uh, come to Christ. I mean, remarkable, this whole thing. And, and what happens in these moments that we're reading, literally the New Testament church is born. It, it just happens. Boom. The Holy Spirit descends, he fills, he comes with a wind, he comes with a fire, the sermon's preached, 3,000 people repent and are baptized, and boom, the New Testament church, as we know it, is born. So the first thing that I wanna point out here is um, there is a call to courage, okay? First point, there's a call to courage that is happening to all the apostles, all the 120 that are gathered here, and the Holy Spirit is literally um, calling them from a place of fear into a place of faith and courage. And so I began to actually dig into this a little bit, and I, I reflected back, or I began to think of how most of us think of the Holy Spirit. We tend to think of the Holy Spirit as the comforter, right? Um, and that's scriptural. John 14, 26 actually in the King James Version calls him uh, the Holy Spirit, the comforter. Jesus is talking and he says, I'm gonna send to you the comforter. And the problem though, and the problem probably here in America and maybe even around the world is that um, comforter doesn't necessarily mean that it's all gonna be warm and snuggly. Um, you know, Abby, my 
beautiful wife um, loves pillows and she loves comforters and all of our beds have lots of pillows and comforters all over them and it's very comfortable. And that's beautiful, that's wonderful. But when you think of the Holy Spirit, when you think of God um, sort of being a comforter, I tend to think of maybe sitting around a campfire covered with an afghan, I had a grandmother who used to knit afghans, drinking hot chocolate and singing kumbaya. And, And I think you actually get the wrong idea of what the Holy Spirit is about. And so I'm digging in a little deeper on comforter. Why do we think of um, the Holy Spirit as comfortable? And, and could it be that we as Christians, if we begin to see and think of the Holy Spirit as one who um, is comfortable, is comforting, that we then can uh, inadvertently begin to think that Christianity is all about our comfort? And then I guess you could take that even a step further and go, therefore, people can begin to go, well, I'm not going to share Jesus with them because I'm not comfortable. Or I'm not going to go over here and obey and do what God's called me to do because I'm not comfortable. And if we're not careful, you can begin to blend some of the American dream and the creature comforts of the American life with the gospel. And we know this Holy Spirit as comforter. And all of a sudden, you've kind of gone off of what comforter is all about. So I dug in a little bit deeper and I want to share it with you today because I think it's um, profound. So the word comforter goes back to the 1300s. Um, A guy named John Wycliffe, and you've probably never heard of him um, unless you know the Wycliffe Bible translators, but that's where their name actually came from. But what John did is he took um, the Latin Vulgate translation of the Holy Bible, of the scriptures, and he translated it to Middle English. So John Wycliffe was like, um, he was a revolutionary because what he did is he took a book uh, that the, the, the normal people in England could not um, read or understand, and he translated the Latin into uh, Middle English so that people could read it and understand the scriptures. Martin Luther did the same thing in the late 14 and early 1500s. He took the Latin Vulgate and translated it into German so the German people could understand it. So, this is where it gets interesting. The word comfort was selected by John Wycliffe when he was translating the Bible. Now, Latin Vulgate, the word comfort, um, was literally uh, the Latin word fortis. Now, hang with me here. Fortis, F-O-R-T-I-S. And fortis actually means brave. Fortis actually means uh, strong. Fortis actually means courageous. And if you think about the 1300s in the United Kingdom, if you uh, were maybe living in an environment that was fortified or strong and people were courageous and there were brave people around you, you would have been comfortable. So it's, it's interesting that he chose this word. But so, so John Wycliffe literally chooses this word comforter to describe the Holy Spirit. And then you fast forward all these um, years and here we are thinking of the Holy Spirit as sort of the Afghan and the Kumbaya and the cup of hot chocolate and all he wants to do is comfort. And I want to take us back because I think what's actually going on here is when the Holy Spirit descends with the wind first and then the fire, I don't imagine anybody is all that comfortable, do you? 
In fact, in that moment, when the wind rushes through the building and then the fire begins to burn over people's heads, I imagine um, comfortable in the way that we as Americans think about comfortableness is the farthest thing from their minds. And so, so literally, uh, you have before Pentecost, this group is huddled and hiding in the upper room. They're waiting in obedience to the Lord Jesus, but I think they're also hiding. They're, they're also scared. They're shuddering. And suddenly, the comforter, the one who makes you brave, who gives you courage, who fills you with strength, who, who um, fills you and makes you new, descends upon them with the wind and the fire. And all of a sudden, the comforter gives these people courage and bravery and strength to share Jesus. We're going to talk about that again in a minute. But as I was putting this sermon together, I was thinking back to a time, uh, it was a number of years ago, and Abby and I were traveling through Northern California. And we were, I don't, it was probably like three hours north of San Francisco. And I didn't have a surfboard, um, but we were staying at this little funny town called Point Arena. And um, a big swell came up. And, and I like to surf. I'm, I'm thoroughly uh, a mediocre surfer, but I do enjoy it. And the swell came up. So Abby and I went down to this open ocean break at this little town called Point Arena. And uh, we got there, and there was this guy named Roy. He was such a character. Oh, my goodness. Um, but there was a guy named Roy, and I started talking to Roy. And literally, guys are pulling up with big wave boards. So these are like 10, 11-foot boards and putting helmets on. And they're literally, you know, putting their helmets and their wetsuits on, big wave boards, and they're paddling out. And I'm standing there with Roy, and he says, why don't you come out and join us? I've got a wetsuit here and a board. And I'm like, uh, Okay. All right, I'm going to do it. So I get, my, get his wetsuit on and I grab this, this board and I literally jump in the water and the water's freezing cold. There's sea urchins um, everywhere and it's an open ocean wave. So I have to paddle out about um, 500 yards. I mean, it is so far out there and there's this channel and then you get there and uh, the report was calling like 13 to 15 feet that day. I, I don't know how big they were, but they were big waves and people are wearing helmets in the lineup and I'm literally sitting there when I get there and... Um, sea lions would come up next to you and bark at you. And, and you're, I mean, I was scared. I mean, I was terrified. I'm scared to death. And you're sitting there and then something would hit your uh, foot and there would be these huge things of kelp that would like drift through. And, uh, you know, I'm turning around, looking over my shoulder at Abby. She was this little tiny, you know, person on the pier way back in at the beach. And, and these guys are taking off on these big waves and I am afraid, and I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you this, but instead of paddling right out to that peak and taking off on a big wave and loving it, I shoulder hopped two little winky waves that were about this big. And at the end, I, I was so um, nervous, I actually had to paddle my surfboard in. Now, you know, if you have to paddle your surfboard in and you're a surfer, it's like you, you probably should just hang up your surfboard and quit, you know? So I, I'm literally, I'm, I'm paddling my board in 500 yards and I finally get there and Abby's on the beach and she's got this girl next to her who has this huge camera with this huge telephoto lens and Abby is literally upset with me. And she was like, I got a, I got a camera person here. Like I had everything ready. I, I, we were standing at the end of the pier and we've been watching you for almost two hours and we're ready for you to catch a great wave and you didn't even take off on one. What happened? And I melted because there was no answer except I was afraid. And it was interesting because that night and the next morning, it was like the Holy Spirit began to intercept me 
And it might've been a point of wisdom that I didn't take off on that wave. I'm not really talking about the wave, but what the Holy Spirit began to work inside of me is, Michael, you can, you, you can either be comfortable or you can be courageous, but you can't be both. And I almost felt myself come to this um, sort of crossroads where I had to decide, am I gonna paddle out ministry-wise, people-wise, uh, in my relationship with the Lord, and am I gonna commit to this thing and take off and paddle for the wave? And it was like the Holy Spirit brought me to this moment. And when I read uh, about Peter in this moment, because Peter is literally in this upper room and he's afraid, he's hiding, the, 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 the doors are locked, the, the blinds are pulled, and he's hiding in this upper room, and and literally the Holy Spirit descends with the wind, with the fire, and then he becomes courageous. He becomes brave. He becomes filled with strength. I think Peter probably had a moment sort of like I did in that funny little Southern California town where I went, Lord Jesus, I am never ever, ever gonna sit on the sidelines. I am gonna get out there at the front of the wave, at the peak, and even if I fall, even if I fail, even if I go down and if I break my board and everything else, I am gonna go for it with everything I've got. We're gonna come back to this in a second, but you literally get to see Peter go through this radical transformation from a coward to a man who preaches a sermon where 3,000 people turn to Christ Jesus. So my first point is the call to courage. You can, be, uh, you can be courageous or you can be comfortable like we as Americans think about comfort, not like John Wycliffe did, but you can't be both. And my second point that I see coming out of this passage so clearly, the first is a call to courage, the second is a call to the supernatural. And I'm not gonna delve into this too much, we're gonna do it in a, in a consecutive week or two, but there is something where the church is notoriously weak at embracing and experiencing and praying for and walking in faith for the supernatural. And you, you can't read this passage without going, how did um, these different languages appear and how all of a sudden did all these people speak in different languages? Truly, that is the Lord. And, you know, if you think about it, uh, you know, we probably have this misnomer in America that, that Jesus was a, a white guy. I mean, go figure that. We have a misnomer in America that somehow God speaks English as his native language. How asinine can we be? You know, but God's native language is not English. It's not even Arabic. It's not even Hebrew. It's not Greek. God speaks. I'm not sure what God speaks. He speaks it all. But why as mere humans would we judge the way someone else is going to interact with and speak with God? Abby and I are in love and married and you could even, we, we have um, things that we would say to one another that someone standing around wouldn't understand. Well, does that mean we have our own language? Uh, I don't know, maybe. It means we have a good marriage. Are there times where in your Christian walk, the Holy Spirit is gonna interact with you in such a way that other people won't understand and maybe even you're saying things in such a way that other people won't understand? Yes, yes. 
And I think where a lot of Christians get all sort of mucked up in all this is they begin to take what is meant to be between you and God and they fling it all about and post it all over social media and whatever and it all of a sudden becomes permission to get weird and unintelligent and silly and foolish and I'm not a fan of that. But what I am a fan of is there is nothing about Christianity that is not supernatural. God came to earth, became a human in the form of a baby, walked the earth for 33 years, was crucified, dead, and buried, and then rose from the dead. I mean, he beat death. He beat hell. He overcame Satan. He rose from the dead. He lives now in us. There is nothing natural about Christianity. So what we see here, number one, is a call to courage. What we see here, number two, is a call to the supernatural. And what we see, number three, which probably is most important, is a call to evangelism. And I love verse 39 because here's what it says. I wanna read it again. The promise, so this is the promise of Jesus Christ, the promise of forgiveness, if you repent, if you turn, receiving the gift of the Spirit. The promise is for you, you and me, and your children, and for all who are far off. All whom the Lord our God will call. Now, no, no, here, we've, we've gotta get this. This is like so important. Lord Jesus, help me connect the dots. The gospel is for people out there. And church folks uh, tend to get um, sort of self-centered and sort of navel-gazing, and we tend to get focused on people in here. And the risk is that as a church grows, it, it starts off being sort of outward-focused and focused on people who are far from God out there. But as it grows, it becomes more um, entrenched in pleasing the people who are sitting in the seats because they're paying the bills. And I wanna actually say to you, if a church is not leading people to Christ Jesus, if a church isn't um, outreaching people, extending beyond its walls, calling people to surrender their lives to Christ Jesus, they're not a church. Listen to me, the church exists to reach people out there. Jesus' last instructions were literally, you're gonna take the good news and go from Jerusalem, the city they're in, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Listen, 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 listen. America, we are the ends of Jesus's earth when he said that. Now, Peter, if you read about Peter in the Gospels, we're not gonna go there, go there if you wanna look him up, but he's full of pride, probably self-centered pride, a lot of bravado, he's self-confident, he's, um, he, he's, so, um, he's always the first one to speak. And at that last supper, when Jesus says what's gonna happen to him, Peter says, oh no, I'll go with you to the end, I'll go with you to death, Jesus, because I am Peter. And it's not but a few hours later that a little slave girl comes up to Peter, not once, but twice and says to Peter, aren't you with him who they're currently crucifying? And Peter denies Jesus twice to this little slave girl and then once to a group of people. And if you read the passage in Luke, it's, it's so powerful, it's like Luke 22. But Jesus' eyes in that moment look over and find the apostle Peter and it's like they, they lock eyes right after Peter denies Jesus three times. And, I, and in that moment, in that powerful, poignant moment, you get the idea that all of Peter's self-pride um, and, and sort of his bravado and his confidence in who he is literally breaks 
Peter is broken. And there's a beautiful scene where Jesus actually reinstates Peter on a beach around Galilee when Peter's gone fishing. And Peter is this really man who was full of himself, full of his own way, full of his own pride. And he becomes a coward that denies Christ. And then he gets reinstated by Christ Jesus on a beach. And now he's hiding in an upper room, praying. And the wind comes and the fire descends and they speak in different languages. And the man who was cowardly, the man who was too afraid to paddle for the wave, suddenly becomes the mouthpiece of the New Testament church. And he literally erupts. You get this idea that they can't contain it. And these 120 people literally are spilling out of this upper room down into the streets and over into Jerusalem. And Peter literally begins to preach. He preaches a sermon. And so what you get is this call to evangelism. And I want you to see something so clearly here, church. This is so important. The Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost with the wind, with the fire, with the different languages. And the Holy Spirit comes, and what is the, the primary result of the infilling and empowering of the Holy Spirit? It is that 3,000 people surrender their lives to King Jesus that day. See, the primary thing is the call to evangelism. The primary thing is that we be a church that reaches out, that reaches beyond. This is literally the infilling power of the Holy Spirit. It's the courage to evangelize. It's the bravery to reach out. It's the courage to set up, stand apart and be different. It's the courage to love. It's the courage to reach beyond. I intentionally asked Jay to come in and open up with the yellow truck this morning because we do two things at Saltbox. When someone comes to Christ, we don't have it here today, but we put a yellow flower in a vase and we have it up front. And we do that so that we as a church keep the main thing, the main thing, which is leading people to Christ Jesus. And the second thing we've just recently done is so simple and in some ways it's almost silly, but we have launched a yellow truck that matches our yellow flowers that keeps our people focused out there. Because we are called to be a church that goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And if it's a yellow flower and a yellow truck that gets us there, then so be it. The primary result of the infilling power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is evangelism and people out there coming to Christ Jesus. I want you to think of one more thing. It's very unusual to me that flames of fire appeared over people. And if you begin to dig through the Old Testament, you could look at people like Gideon and Elijah and Elisha, even Moses. There's many places where they literally set up an altar and on the altar they'll kill a lamb and they'll stand back and the power of God will literally come and ignite the sacrifice that is on top of the altar with fire. Hang with me here a second, church. What's happening at Pentecost is literally that the New Testament believers are standing in unison, praying together, asking for this infilling, asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they literally, just like the angel would come and touch that sacrifice and it would ignite in fire, they literally 
become living sacrifices and they are all of a sudden ignited with the power of the Holy Spirit and they are sent then out to change a city, to change a country. In 30 short years, Christianity erupted all the way to Rome, the center of the known world. I'm 39 years old and Abby and I have looked at one another and said every single day from now until the day we die, we wanna crawl in bed and go, we gave everything, we left it on the field. We did everything we could to advance the cause of Christ Jesus in the city. And I wanna call us as a church today. Pentecost is more than what people think it is. Pentecost is literally making you brave. The infilling power of the Holy Spirit is what makes you courageous. It's what gives you the, the inner drive and the goods to go out and share King Jesus with a lost and broken world. And that's church. That's what the church exists to do. And if any church that I'm a part of ever ceases to lead people to Christ Jesus, I'm gonna turn the lights off and walk out because that is what we are called to be about. See, a lot of us, especially those of us who would consider ourselves more charismatic, ask questions like, how much of God do I have or do you have? I think a better question coming out of the Apostle Peter's life is not how much of God do you have? No, 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 no. It's, it's how much of you does he have? Because when he finds a surrendered heart, a heart that is yielded, a heart that is so turned towards him, that is willing to go the distance, that is willing to lay it all down. He will take you and he will fill you and he will energize you. And I hope that in 10 years and 20 years and 30 years, we look back and go, look at how God used a motley crew. Look how God used a group of people who brought little loaves and a few little fish and he broke it and he multiplied it and he used it to change a city. He used it to influence a state. He used it to affect a seaboard. He used it actually to ignite another great awakening. May it be that the church in this hour actually rises up and turns their hearts back towards King Jesus and goes, Holy Spirit, would you come on us and would you fill us? Would you ignite us with that fire? And may we become living sacrifices that go unto the ends of the earth, carrying the love of Jesus, the light of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, and the gospel message of Christ Jesus. That's the kind of church I wanna be a part of. And those are the kind of people I wanna roll with. I wanna end with two things this morning. I think I'd be hopelessly amiss if I didn't provide an opportunity for anyone who's scrolling through Facebook or whatever platform you're on and you've found us not to surrender your life to King Jesus. So I wanna pray and I wanna give you an opportunity to do that. But the second thing I wanna do in prayer is I actually wanna offer, I wanna ask you, Saltbox, our Saltbox family, would you at a new level stand with me and embrace the call to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, understanding that the primary call is then to go out and make disciples, to share the gospel, to go to our city, to go to our state, to carry hope. So two things, 
If you're scrolling through, if you're watching this feed and you go, man, I do not have what this crazy bald guy has, but I want some of that, we can pray right now. There's no magic words, but I'll lead you in a prayer and you can surrender your life to Jesus. We had somebody in New York City surrender their life to Jesus last week. Isn't that crazy? So we're gonna pray. Perry, come on, you play wherever you are. First thing we're gonna do is those of you who wanna surrender your life, today is the day. Don't, let it, don't go any further. Don't, don't go from here without the full knowledge and revelation that you've surrendered your life to King Jesus. And then secondly, it's a call to salt box for us to embrace the infilling power of the Holy Spirit knowing that he, wanna make, he wants to make you brave, he wants to make you courageous, and he wants to send us out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's people right now watching online or even listening maybe on the podcast or some other platform. But today's the day for them. And I wanna say to you, if you're out there and you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit on your heart, today is the day to surrender your life to him. And I want you to repeat after me something like this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that you are God. I recognize that your love has been coming after me. I recognize that you're never gonna stop. I recognize that you paid it all on a cross for my sin. And I believe that you rose from the dead three days later. And I wanna ask you, King Jesus, to come and literally live inside of my heart and you, Holy Spirit, to come and fill me. Live inside of me, teach me to walk with you and listen to you, find me in your word. Make me new in Christ Jesus. Now for the second group. This is for Saltbox, this is for our church family. Saltbox, we are not gonna be another church that gathers without looking beyond our walls. And if you're willing, if you're willing to surrender at a deeper level and to embrace the infilling power of the Holy Spirit and the call to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, I want you to stand in your living room I don't care what's happening. This is about you and King Jesus. Stand with me. Lord, as a church, Father, as a church, we embrace the call to be filled with your Holy Spirit and we understand the connection between the infilling power of the Holy Spirit and then the call to go to the city, the call to go to the state, the call to go to the nation, the call to go to the eastern seaboard. Lord, we see it as a call and we wanna answer that call. Father, would you change us from being a group that seeks after creature comforts and instead would you fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that we are emboldened, that we are made brave, that we are made courageous to go and share the gospel of Christ Jesus. Father, bless every family, bless every marriage, every single person, every young person that's watching this. Father, would you take us, take us, and would you shape us to be the mouthpiece for the gospel of Christ Jesus in 2020 and beyond. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Perry's gonna lead us in a closing song. There's a number on your screen and there's also an email address on your screen. If you've surrendered your life to Christ Jesus for the first time, I wanna know about it. Shoot us an email, call us, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to even help you get you some tools in your hand to help you begin the journey. If you 
have for the first time embraced the call to even understand what it means to be infilled with the power of the Holy Spirit so that you go out. Don't let it stop here. Let this just be the beginning.